Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, November 6th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing those savings directly onto you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, photography, as you want, at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. With this episode, we are kicking off a month about space exploration. With the movie The Martian being a blockbuster success, many of us have turned our attention to the skies, and it doesn't hurt that it gets dark now at 5 p.m. Did you see The Martian? I haven't yet. It's actually something that I've been waiting to see with my husband, Adam, and kind of saving it. But, you know. I've seen it twice. I've seen it with lots of scientists. I've seen it uh, by myself. Uh, I've loved it. Who who have you seen it with? I've seen it with Adam Savage, and I've seen it with Chris Hadfield. Are you name dropping, Kishore? A little bit. But more importantly, um, I saw it with uh, a whole group of of sort of scientists and science communicators. So it was really fun to watch it in an environment where there's a lot of enthusiasm for what it represented. And at the same time, it was hilariously awesome to go to the bar afterwards and dissect every little inch of the science within the movie. Well, so there's that movie, there's Star Wars around the corner, Uh, you know, it's dark all the time now. (laughs) And uh, I thought it would be really fun to spend an entire month talking to people about space. And space is weirder than fiction. 
Yeah. And also, we're going to be in an election year next year, and we got to make some policy decisions about who to vote for. And if you're interested in space, I thought one person that we should definitely talk to is the deputy administrator of NASA. Her name is Dava Newman. She's an aerospace biomedical engineer. And for a big part of her career, she was at MIT, where she designed flight suits for astronauts for what is going to be our now upcoming mission to Mars. And to quote Wired, uh, she's been called the fashion designer to the stars. So David Newman in January 2015 was tapped by President Obama to become the deputy administrator of NASA. That means that she's number two in the hierarchy. She's responsible for providing overall leadership, planning and policy direction for the agency. So that is our interview for today. Kishore, what caught your eyes uh, in the news? So Caitlin Smith, our wonderful research assistant, sent in a couple story ideas this week, and one really caught my eye. So last week, you might have noticed that smoked meats and processed meats were classified as a class one carcinogen because of their their risk, You know, basically associating them at, as the same carcinogen level as smoking. Well, hang on a minute. So well, the yeah, truth well, it, is, yeah, is the, truth the evidence is, different. is the same, the risk is different. Yeah, right? so, yeah, absolutely. But the idea, it, that story caught a lot of headlines. And what Caitlin noticed is in the context of that, there was a great article in the New York Times about uh, the flattening of our death rate. And what is the death rate, you ask? Essentially, the death rate is sort of our mortality rate. And since about 1963, when we've really started tracking this through 2010, there's been a steep decline, you know, advances in in uh, medicine, advances in healthcare have really uh, given rise to the the longevity. So we've seen a huge decline. But suddenly, from 2010 to 2013, a new study came out in in uh, JAMA this week that indicated that the rate of decline basically has disappeared. That there is a flattening of that. So that means this is as long as our life is going to get, unless there's some major change. <laughs> Well, it's not a very long period of time to do this study. So to to be fair, like that, that sort of four-year period, not probably long enough to draw any conclusions, uh, but it's an interesting finding. And so it, it begs the question why, which the study didn't really address, uh, but there is definitely a lot of conjecture on what's going on. Do you fancy a guess? Well, you know, I think that probably the low-hanging fruit has been accounted for, right? You know, changing our hygiene, the sort of big killers. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been able to find a couple of ways of managing long-term diseases that were causes of death. I think probably we've made some safety precautionary things in terms of you know, deaths due to car accidents and, and so forth. And yeah, I think now we're going to probably come to the part of the curve where it's going to be harder and harder to see a decline. So that is definitely one of the thoughts behind this. And uh, as one researcher put it, like, everyone is on statins to control cholesterol at this point. So maybe that's what's showing up in these numbers is that we've reached the saturation that you're talking about. Uh, On the flip side, though, there are some researchers that suggest maybe we're seeing a lag in the obesity epidemic start to show up in these numbers. Uh, And that's what we're really uh, showcasing here. Like going back in the numbers, we saw a similar delay uh, when smoking really um, hit in terms of uh, its impact on mortality. So we don't really know at this point, but I find it really interesting that we've flattened out in terms of our um, in terms of our longevity, at least in the U.S. right now. So it's an interesting article to uh, to check out in the New York Times. Uh, and the study is also fascinating. I think in another six years, they're probably going to be probing 
where is this rate going? Well, and hopefully when we have, you know, some of these leads on personalized medicine, CRISPR ways of, you know, maybe... Self-driving cars. <laughs> getting rid of cancer. Yeah. Then maybe things will turn around once again. Anything catch your eye in the news this week? Yeah. You know, one of my favorite news sources uh, that is entirely tongue-in-cheek uh, caught my eye. There was a Fox News headline that what said... You, wait, what are you doing on <laughs> Fox News looking for science information? Well, admittedly, I was trolling a little bit. <laughs> Um, but the headline says, new study finds Antarctic ice growing, countering earlier studies. You've probably seen this. Uh, it's been picked up by a lot of uh, climate skeptic deniers. Climate, climate, I shouldn't call them the cats skeptics. Climate deniers, people who deny the fact that the world is getting warmer as a result of human activity. Um, so there is a study coming out of NASA that suggests that snow that has been piling up or that was piling up 10,000 years ago in Antarctica is now adding enough ice to offset the increased losses that uh, are coming from thinning glaciers. So the overall ice sheets in Antarctica are in fact getting bigger slightly rather than getting smaller as was previously suggested. Now, even the person who wrote this study worried that these data would be misinterpreted by the media. <laughs> um, and sure enough, the first quote uh, that the Fox News headline or that the Fox News article uh, gives, which is, you know, totally antithetical to their headline, is that um, the glaciologist saying we're essentially in agreement with other studies that show an increase in ice discharge in the Antarctic Peninsula and blah, blah, blah. Our main disagreement is for East Antarctica and the interior of West Antarctica. There we see an ice gain that exceeds the losses in the other areas. So I can see where the headline's coming from, but let's unpack a little bit of what the data show and well, what the information might be. Well, first of all, glaciologist? That is like the coolest name for a scientist ever, <laughs> a scientist yeah. type. Yeah, that sounds, that's, although I think I'd rather be an astronaut. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So, um, there are two ways that you can measure how much ice there is in Antarctica. Well, there are probably many ways, but there are two main ways that you can do it from satellite images. One is to look at the elevation of ice at the top of the sheet. And the other way is to take into account gravity. And it turns out that if you just look at the top of the ice of the sheet, the way this particular study did, uh, you can, you know, these, these results, uh, are, this is what you find. Um, now, the study only reported data collected up until 2008. So we don't know what's happened since 2008. And interestingly enough, the study showed that between 1992 and 2001, the ice sheet was gaining about 112 billion tons of ice per year. But between 2003 and 2008, that number went down to 82 billion tons, which means that the overall rate of increase was decreasing with time. And in fact, we don't know what's happening, you know, in the last seven years, whether that rate has continued to go down or whether it's changed. And the authors themselves suggested that within 20 to 30 years, even these kinds of gains with this rate of decrease will now no longer be able to offset uh, the overall losses. Now, there are a couple things. If you measure ice sheets using the gravity method, you actually get different results and you get an overall loss in ice sheets. So, so there's where there is a little bit of conflict between the scientists themselves. But what's slightly more worrying about these data are that if, if they fact, in fact do hold up, then we might actually be 
underestimating what is causing the sea level rise. So if we think, okay, because part of the sea level rise is attributable to ice melting in Antarctica, and so then we put that into our models and we can project how far, you know, how much ice is going to melt, how much the sea level is going to rise, etc. But if instead there's an unaccounted for variable that is causing that sea level to rise that is not what we thought it was, is not actually coming from ice melting in Antarctica, but it's the sea level still rising, we might have a culprit there that we actually don't know about yet, or we might be underestimating the effects of that other variables have on the rate of sea level rise. And this is a very complex ecosystem, because as much as sea level rise is, a, is of concern here, we're also worried about the albedo from just the reflectivity of the of the ice sheet. So losing ice is also losing that sort of white spot on the earth. So we reflect back less sunlight. And so we warm in in that capacity as well. So there's a lot of different factors here for us to keep considering. Yeah, and it keeps getting and this, this harkens back to our interview with Kathleen Hall Jamison, like you know, months and months ago, about how um, uh, media outlets can sort of translate uh, work in a certain way, and that scientists need to combat that by utilizing a very rigorous set of ways of of explaining their their studies, which doesn't seem to be done here. Obviously, there's... well, you know, I think he tried. <laughs> I think the glaciologist knew that you know, and he predicted this, and and you know, I think that I think that he and his team did did try to mitigate this, but I think this just goes to show that you know, we as we we need to be careful about the sources of news that we look at, and you know, nothing against Fox News, but this they were not the only ones. In fact, there are was actually, you know, relatively well balanced um, comparatively to some of the other articles that are that I saw from other news outlets that were just really, you know, jumping on the bandwagon saying, hey, science was wrong. And in fact, we don't have to worry about this. Eh, single study articles when it comes <laughs> to climate, I, I almost ignore. And, and yeah, it, and also remember that it's the Arctic ice melting that in some ways is is more worrisome um, because the sea ice, at least in Antarctica, changes so much over the course of a year. You know, there's a lot more melting in summer and, and so forth. And so, you know, there's anyway, it's a complicated matter. But um, I was I, f- I did find it amusing that this uh, topic was very quickly picked up just as the um, the studies author predicted. I think the real lesson here is we have to audit your search history on Google <laughs> because this whole going on Fox News to like check out science stories for the week, I'm not sure we're going to let continue. Hey, man, we're fair and balanced here at Inquiring Minds. <laughs> so we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with David Newman. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a -a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is $500 and a king-size mattress is $950. So to get $50 toward any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, Visit casper.com slash inquiring minds and use promo code inquiring minds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiring minds, promo code inquiring minds. And this episode is sponsored by the Great Courses Plus. 
The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get an unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. David Newman, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm really glad to talk to you guys. So about a year ago, you must have gotten a call. I don't know if it was from the president himself or from one of his staff to tap you to be the next deputy administrator of NASA. What was that like? What happened? It's pretty cool. Being a former academic at MIT, I thought one of my students was playing a prank on me. (laughs) (laughs) Because you get a call and it says unknown. And the gentleman on the other side told me he was calling from the White House. And would I be interested in speaking with him? And uh, he said it was the Office of Executive Personnel, you know, for the president. So I said, wait a minute. So I said, so I sat down and actually thought, oh, oh, this is a real thing. It's not a prank from one of my students. It's not a prank from one of my colleagues. So, and we had a great discussion and asked me if I'd be interested in considering being the deputy administrator at NASA. Had you any idea that this was a possibility or was it completely out of the blue? It's a little bit out of the blue. I mean, the world is full of possibilities. I've been an academic. I'm an aerospace engineer for the last 25 years and loving my job. I thought I had the world's best job being a professor at MIT and teaching aerospace engineering. But I have to say being NASA deputy administrator is giving it a run for the money. You know, this could be the best job I ever have. It's it's a lot of fun. Well, I think a lot of people actually would be scared of such a job because you've got to deal with a political party, obviously, and potentially an election coming up. So, you know, there's maybe a job change in the, on the horizon, depending on who gets elected, of course. Um, but also, it seems to me like it would be a really hard job when the funding for NASA has continued to go down and down year after year. So I wanted to ask you about about that and sort of where are we with NASA? Was President Obama a good president for NASA? And you know how, how optimistic are you for the future? I'm really optimistic. We're on our journey to Mars with NASA. Our budgets have been robust. The president's requests have, have actually been increasing. And then what we get for appropriations, we actually have a robust budget. We're looking for more and we are really optimistic. And as I said, we're on our journey to Mars. So I'm focused on sending humans to, to the red planet in the next two decades. We like to say we're actually closer to Mars than we've ever been, ever, in the history of humanity. We have five rovers, orbiters at Mars today. So I'd like to start there. So we're exploring Mars. Every day we get back incredible data. Now we get HD images back. We found water. We knew there was ice on Mars, but now we have actually water, very salty water. And um, so every day we get new information from Mars. So we're plotting our course. We're on International Space Station with astronauts today. That's step one. We're learning a lot. We're learning about astronaut health, safety, risk, learning how to live in the microgravity environment for long durations. Scott Kelly's on his one-year mission. It's fantastic. And then we go to cislunar space. That's Earth-Moon orbit. And we have a lot of technologies to test out. It's the proving ground. 
So in the 2020s, we'll be in cislunar space. And then by the 2030s, we get to, to Mars orbit and to Mars. So we have a really focused plan on our journey to Mars. And like I said, we're in low Earth orbit now, International Space Station, and then the 20s get closer to the moon, and then by the 30s get to Mars. That sounds amazing. I mean, sometimes I hear cynical people say, oh, well, we wouldn't even be able to go back to, Mar- to the moon right now if we wanted to because of the way that, you know, our, that, 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 you know, the current state of NASA. Is that true? Could we, if we wanted to, like, of course, in the next can- five years, could we get to the moon? We can, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. Of course, we live within budgets and reality and constraints, but absolutely, whatever's in our imagination, we can do. I mean, that's what's so great about being at, being at NASA. And we definitely will be back to uh, Earth-Moon orbit, and then we'll get onward to Mars. That's our strategy. That's our plan. And we're making it happen every day. So what are some of the major hurdles before we can send a person to Mars? I don't even want to say man, because hopefully it'll be a woman. <laughs> Absolutely. It'll be a woman commander, um, I'm pretty sure. Awesome. So, uh, so, so yeah, so what do we need to solve in order to get to Mars? So there's human health risks. So from the astronaut level, uh, radiation protection is really important. We're researching it right now. We're learning. Again, even having um, astronauts up on space station with Scott Kelly's one-year mission. It's fantastic, because you probably know Scott has a twin, Mark. It's the first time we have one astronaut in space. His brother's, of course, been in space, but now he's on Earth, and we're doing the genomics. So it's the first time we've ever been able to do the genomic study in space. So it's a small N, right? Because two identical twins, but it's fantastic because we're learning a lot. Because we really have to figure out, um, in terms of radiation protection, it's going to become very individual. It's all about protection. We have other issues in human health, musculoskeletal. We uh, we don't want the astronauts to be deconditioned. You do a lot of exercise. There's probably some pharmaceuticals. So we look at all these as countermeasures. So we're countering basically the deleterious effects of microgravity. When we get back to the planets, Moon and Mars are partial gravity environments. So then people perform a little differently. It's actually really fun. Then you kind of lope, kind of that moonwalking. But I well, think that actually is a word, loping. Loping? Yeah, loping, like horses oh, lope. So, so I use loping I argue for... about that all the time because there's this like kids book that we have where they say garden bugs lope and we're like, that's not a word. It Apparently is a it word. Is. I did a whole PhD on loping biomechanics of people wow. on Mars. <laughs> so it's just kind of this one foot in front of the other. It's great. You know, you get a lot of air time. Wow. But loping on Mars, that's what you're going to do. It's, it's fun. So what, how long will a person have to be in the spaceship to get to Mars? And then, you know, do you have an idea of how long the mission would be? Like, how long are we talking about being away from the Earth? So the other challenges we have are the technology challenges. So propulsion. So right now with conventional propulsion, chemical rockets, we have, we have that technology, but it would take us six, eight months to get to Mars. So if with our investments in kind of more radical propulsion technologies, maybe we can trim that to half. Wouldn't that be cool? get to Mars in three months. So that's, you know, at the research level right now, but we might have some breakthrough technologies, propulsion technologies that really have the time of the trip. So that would be great because that really helps you keep your astronauts safe and and healthy because they're transiting in a shorter distance. And we're going to Mars to look for the evidence, past evidence of life. Other technology challenges that we have are in-space propulsion because you kind of want to get to Mars, but you essentially want to have your cachet. It's exploration. So the successful explorers in the history of humankind, have kind of lived off the land. We call that in-situ resources. You know, can I get to North America and live off the land there? You're not going to take all of your animals and your food with you. Well, we need fuel. So can we have our cachet, if you will? Can we have our fuel depots, if you will, in space? If we have a lot of those set outside, we can do that with some pretty interesting 
in space propulsion technologies are not for humans, but for instance, solar electric power. Very slow, but very powerful, very high thrust. You kind of accelerate all the way to Mars. So that's a really interesting in space propulsion technology that we're investigating, we're researching. Then you get to habitats and you get to life support systems. So habitats, we're looking at new habitats that we'll test out in cislunar, Earth-Moon orbit, but they're really going to take us all the way to Mars. So we have to get these systems that will last. When we get to Mars, we call that Earth-independent. So all of your systems has to be very long duration. You're going to be completely autonomous. And the life support technology we have on space station, we're learning a lot. We have people up there living, but we do bring resupplies up. And, you know, we can have iterative design and put up new parts and things like that. But when we get to our journey to Mars, we're going to have to have that all those entire systems working. So we're proving them out in the 2020s in what we call the proving ground. And the 2030s, when we really send humans to Mars, those systems will be a benefit of the last 20 years of research and technology developments. So you're talking about sending people to Mars, but I don't hear you talking about bringing them home. Is this going to be a one-way trip? No, we're sending a round trip. <laughs> NASA's always going to do a round trip to Mars. I think we'll be interplanetary. So I think eventually, you know, people will stay on Mars. But for sure, all of the initial missions, absolutely a round trip. Do you think we would get there faster if we just did a one-way trip? I mean, is there a push towards that? No, or? you wouldn't get there faster at all. Uh, you just, well, you know, you, you save the you save the return trip. Doesn't make doesn't make. I mean, any in sense. terms of like the technology, maybe the same technology to get there and and to get back. So it's all the same technology investments, but ethically and morally, we want to bring people back. We want to sure. bring people back to Earth. Think they'll want to come back to Earth. The early explorers, explore. And then you come back and share it with your family and, and friends, celebrate with the world, really want to come back. Earth is a pretty wonderful place, pretty wonderful planet. I think people would miss it. But I think in the long run, we probably will be interplanetary. Hmm. And do you think that the movie The Martian has made an impact? I mean, it certainly has made an impact in terms of how much people are talking about this. But does it actually have a tangible effect on either NASA or the budgets or, you know, it, Anything like that. I think it has a tangible effect on the public. And that's what we love about it. And plus, it's such a good book. It was a great movie. So we love it. And NASA worked with the authors seriously to, uh, it was great. They asked for technical advice and consulting. So we worked with them at NASA and just, we couldn't be more thrilled. We think it's a great movie. Again, I read the book. It was great. And uh, Andy did so much research. He really got it right. He did a lot of research and tried to portray the absolute reality of the technical systems. And if he took artistic license, then he was, you know, he'd said when he did that, like the windstorms. We don't have those huge uh, kind of windstorms at Mars. We have wind on Mars all the time, but it has only 1% atmosphere. So the wind on Mars kind of feels like a feather. It doesn't feel like this, you know, hurricane coming through your door. But, you know, everyone was upfront about that. Some is artistic license, but all the systems you see, you see actually ion thruster propulsion in there. You see the him growing food and living off food, those are all life support systems. So that's exactly what we need to learn how to do. Kind of self-sustaining. Again, can you live off the land? So all of that were great depictions. And then, of course, there's the story of don't want to be stranded, right? You want to get the astronaut, Martian astronaut back home. 
Um, so there's another book, too, that I read recently by Neil Stevenson called Seven Eves. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I haven't read book. it. But it, it projects 5,000 years into the future. And Ow. the reason it begins is because the moon has actually been hit by a meteor and it's broken up and essentially destroys the Earth as a result. But there's two years in which people have time to send as many people up to space as possible. And the reason I'm telling you about this is because there's a lot of, you know, writing in the book about these solutions for how are people going to live off of you know, with no agriculture, you mm-hmm. know, except the algae that they can bring up in these spaceships with them. So I wanted to talk a little bit about any progress that you've made in some of these sort of nitty gritty solutions. You know, are the astronauts expected to grow their own food, for example, or you can be bringing everything up? Have you heard about our veggie experiment on space station? No. So we're growing vegetables. It's fantastic. So let us, so yeah, jump on our website, look at International Space Station and the veggie experiment. It's actually in its third generation, its third version. So talk about a good night on space station when you get to eat lettuce that you've grown in space station so absolutely food is critical and i think we all love plants and living living things so it gives i think a little extra special otherwise it's kind of like going camping right right freeze dried you have to hydrate it it's tolerable but you sure would love to see a living plant and lettuce and and eat that so yeah we have the veggie experiment going on right now it actually gets you know some of our our most hits of, of all of our experiments going on in space station. So there's another side to it that interests me personally, because it's all about psychology. Mm-hmm. And it's this, this notion that at microgravity or zero G, people get space stupid, uh, maybe because of the way that, you know, our, our brains evolved to be on Earth, and the way that our neurons signal are maybe affected mm-hmm. by gravity. And when you don't have that anymore, there are a lot of different changes. And so is this a thing, Space Stupid, that you're working on? Um, and is it, you know, what are some of the solutions that you're looking at? Or is this still a problem that needs to be solved? I don't know about Space Stupid, but I can tell you what happens a little bit to, sure. <laughs> when you go in microgravity. There's a major fluid shift because, of course, you're in a weightless environment. It's so there is more pressure, more fluids, rather than being pulled down by gravity to your toes. Now it is floating. So you might feel like you have a cold. Your sinuses would get a little bit stuffy. And we kind of, if you look at astronauts, kind of some say chicken legs. Like they might look a little thin in their legs and their faces kind of look like you have a cold, may look a little bit stuffy. So there's extra pressure. So we're studying right now intracranial pressure because, you know, it might uh, have a little bit more pressure into the eyes. So that's a serious uh, issue that we're studying. But again, I'm sure we'll come up with a good countermeasure for it. Now, the psychological effects, the social psychological effects, the human factors, that's critically important. I think it's critically important because, again, we're going to send initial crews, right? Four people, six people, they're going to be small people. You're locked up in something very small, isolated, Wait, confined small environment. small people? You mean there's going to be a height limit? No, or not do you small mean people, a very small <laughs> very environment. Small number of people, right? Yeah, very, no, yeah right. Okay. It's a limited number of people yeah. can fit in any spacecraft. Right. So say a crew of four, and you're going to be in a very small, confined environment. And so are we all going to get along, right? So the training and the psychosocial, and if you're on multiple-year mission, then this is so we really do pay attention to psychosocial behavior, teamwork, leadership, teamwork, and how does everyone get along in a very confined environment? So do you actually pick people in part for how they get along with each other? And how that's exactly it. So take a look at their team dynamics or teamwork, 
How are they under stress? So there's a lot about the psychosocial. And also, you know, those trigger working together. You can do a lot of training for that because what are people's trigger points and things like that? That's always good to know about because you want the team working as efficiently as possible. And when you've been together in a small place for a long time, there's there's a lot to that. So the more we know about it and the, the you know better we can put teams together, then the more efficient they'll be. So clearly this there's a lot of projects going on here and you're NASA's number two. What does a day in the life of David <laughs> Newman look like when you're at the office, not when you're, you know, out on the road? So the day in the office is, is actually fun. So get in the office early and I get all these great um, calm feeds and I get to see what, what data came last night from Mars, literally. What happened in the solar system, right? You know, of our New Horizons mission, there might be a new image of Pluto I get to see. I definitely get to see somewhere way out in the solar system. And I get to think about technology at, at NASA. I think about exploration. I think about technology and innovation, a lot of education. So all of that great news at you know, so much doesn't even fit into my first half hour while I'm having my coffee at work. And then have a lot of meetings. We actually have a lot of team meetings in terms of from the administrator suite, uh, what's on tap today. So again, I kind of try to stay focused on the technology and the innovation, the education piece. It's a pretty uh, multidisciplinary job, I'd say, multi aspects of it. We're looking and we're kind of in budget season right now, looking at our fiscal 17 budget right now while trying to get our 16 budget passed. And uh, so we're working both with folks on the Hill and, again, telling our story, telling our story about the journey to Mars and what our plan is and being really clear about that. Lots of times there's some outreach activities or meeting meeting with either students or teachers. If any opportunity, I get to do that. I try to take advantage of that. And then a lot of business meetings, too, of course, with industry colleagues that might come in or, or we might see them. A lot of reviews. We're in developing so many things right now. It's probably the height of NASA for development, meaning our space launch system this is our heavy lift launch system to get beyond low Earth orbit. That's in development. So there's just all kinds of design reviews, all kinds of milestones. That's the space launch system. Also, Orion is being developed. That's the capsule. And that's also in its development stage. In addition to that, our first priority right now is commercial crew. We're transitioning. We're transitioning to two U.S. providers Boeing and uh, SpaceX developing, they can, right now we have cargo to space station, right? We have Orbital and SpaceX, as companies are developing cargo to transport International Space Station. But Boeing and SpaceX have the contracts for commercial crew right now. So we hope in the next few years, then it'll be U.S. industry launching U.S. astronauts up to space station. So that's a lot of development. So it's really exciting, but every day get to think about all these things that are happening. So historically in the past, though, it's my understanding that it would be NASA, um, you know, itself that would be doing that kind of building. And now it sounds like you are um, outsourcing some of the work. Um, how is that working? Is that is that is that an accurate perception of what's going on? And well, we're partnering. So uh -huh. we're partnering with our industry partners. And we've always NASA's always had industry partners. But now it is it's a great new model in terms of private public partnership. So now it's really, we're really relying on the companies to help in terms of the future to get astronauts and provide cargo as well as human capability to International Space Station. And then we're going to get on with our exploration because what NASA is, is the agency to do our aeronautics and our space exploration. And so we want to get beyond low Earth orbit. And so at NASA, we're developing Space Launch System, the Orion, but these are with contracts, of course, to our industry partners. So we do a lot of in-house R&D, some technology development. But of course, there's major contracts that go out to industry to develop all these systems with us. 
if we had a listener who was really pro NASA and loved what you wanted to do and wanted to vote in a way that would um, help NASA, what advice would you give that person in terms of how they should choose a candidate? I don't mean to endorse any individual candidate, but what should they be looking for in terms of talking points or in terms of, you know, history of voting and so forth? So I would say they should talk to all the candidates because that's how they can help us at NASA. They can, it can inform them. It's really important to educate them. What you'd be looking for is, are they going to invest in science and technology and the future? And that goes to me for the future of education for our kids, as well as the future of science and technology. We're all in this together and innovation. That's how we're great. That's how we can be great in the U.S. So is those investments in research and technology and then the future of exploration. So there's also this debate amongst scientists and amongst lay people about you know where that money should be going. Should it should it be going to a handful of large institutions, large universities? Should you know we spend more money sending it to MIT, or should we be distributing it across many many more labs? You know, there's there are arguments for both sides of how innovation works. I know there's been some talk amongst neuroscientists in particular about some of these prizes that are being handed out. You know, large prizes, but they're going to really established professors, and does that make it even harder for any emerging young talent to break in. So what is your opinion about uh, that kind of dichotomy between, you know, should we be spending more money um, in some of these bastion institutions, or should we be distributing it, you know, across um, smaller places? The good thing is we're doing both right now. But to me, it all comes down to excellence. We do have limited budget, so we need to invest where we can get the top performance. And that's across industry and academia. And so essentially, we want to be investing in excellence. And so the distributed model, we have a space grant program. So we have grants in all 50 states. So everyone gets to participate. And a lot of that's for education and outreach. And then there are some specific research centers. And again, they're distributed in many states. But then you kind of go where the excellence is or where the niche is, say, for life support. Right now, that's in Indiana, and they move around. Sometimes they're competed every five or ten years. Competition is good. So that's another way to keep everyone on their toes. But some of the larger, more pooled university research grants are important as well, kind of centers of excellence. But they don't always just go to one place. They're competitive. They're competed. They're peer-reviewed. But, of course, say with some of our larger missions and whatnot, you want to really go where the excellence is because we want to succeed and we want to invest in excellence. But we also have a distributed model where everyone can participate. In a similar vein, I wanted to actually get your thoughts on the extent to which NASA's ideas might be influenced by competition from countries like China or Russia. Um, does that affect what you guys do? You, does, is, there, is there any or, you know, is there any push to be the first to get to Mars? Or is this going to be, you know, a global effort? How did how did what the, uh, the other countries do influence what you do? So we want to lead the journey to Mars. We're going out in a leadership role, and we want the world to join us. It really is a global enterprise, exploration of this magnitude. So far away, it's so hard. Absolutely, the world has to do it. But at NASA, we want to lead. So, you know, we have our plan. We're the ones articulating. We're going to be the leaders. We're on our journey to Mars. But please come join us. So we really are looking for that. And we have a great model from International Space Station and Those partners are very excited about this, but it's not limited to those partners. There's a lot of emerging space 
programs all over the world. And we're saying, hey, if you're excited about this, then tell us how you want to partner. So we're actually very open to all kinds of really interesting partnering because it really is global exploration in our mind. Awesome. Mars 2030s. Looking Mars 2030s. <laughs> and we'll be, we'll be leading. Come on board. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. David thank Newman. you very much. I love Inquiring Minds. I love Dava Newman. She's uh, exceptionally positive, relentlessly optimistic, and she really blends art and design into her world as a scientist and engineer in a really incredible way. At the same time, I mean, NASA's had a lot of successes over the past few years, going back to Curiosity, but her optimism on the budget situation was a little bit surprising, because yeah. that's been... Uh, I guess in my worldview, it's not as optimistic. Like, they haven't passed a budget. There isn't as much energy and enthusiasm in a Republican-led Congress to invest more in NASA right now. Yeah, that completely took me aback, too. I was expecting her to be diplomatic, of course, but to also, you know... Let the let let our listeners or, or let the audience know that this is still something that we should be caring about and putting you know money aside. That this sort of a call for money, and I and I'm sure she wouldn't have. I'm sure that wasn't her intention is to say, oh no no, we're fine, we don't need your money. Um, but I certainly, yeah, I was surprised at uh, how positive she was about the budgetary situation. And, and I'm not worried about sort of year over year fiscal issues. I think that there's an ebb and flow to that. Uh, but Ariel Waldman, who was on the show a couple weeks ago, uh, was on a National Academy of Sciences um, panel and committee that issued a report on uh, funding that NASA would have to sustain for a crewed mission to Mars. And what it really showed was that we have to raise the level of consistent NASA funding for a period of 30 years, uh, well above the rate of inflation rising. And it doesn't seem like the environment is set up for a 30-year sustained investment in NASA above the current rate of inflation in today's environment. It just doesn't occur to me that way. But maybe if your job is to get us to Mars, you have to believe that that's going to happen. And in fact, that you have to show people that you're making progress and that this is possible for them to even consider that this is something, something we spend money There's on. There's a, a million reasons for her to be optimistic, whether it is the Martian, like you mentioned, which is, a, I think, a tremendous success for the agency, or spokespeople like Elon Musk, like trying to, you know, land rockets on barges, and how much that kind of communication to the broader public just keeps NASA in the forefront. Of all the scientific agencies out there, I think NASA does the best on social media. They do the best about communicating their work and sharing a level of excitement and opening their doors. So I think continuing that trend, I think, is definitely reason for optimism. I have the slight worry that they're due for some regression to the mean. We've had, they've had some spectacularly successful missions lately, whether it's New Horizons, whether it's Curiosity. There feels, I mean, I have no basis for this whatsoever, except like that unreliable gut feeling. To, uh, so whatever bacteria in there are telling me that like, isn't it, aren't they due for something to go wrong on well, a mission? But also it makes me wonder, you know, for a long time, we didn't hear a lot of stories from astronauts. And now it seems since Commander Hadfield's kind of opened the door uh, that, you know, we 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 now kind of have a, an inside look and maybe NASA's realized that, you know, I mean, look, Hadfield was Canadian, so he really wasn't, right? Yeah, he's yeah, definitely Canadian, so... but I'm seeing where you're going with it. I don't know what the <laughs> well, Canadian what I, part is. <laughs> the Canadian part is that maybe he wasn't under NASA's jurisdiction. Oh, he in was terms 100% his... under really? NASA's jurisdiction. Uh, that is, I don't think that's how that works at all. Well, all right. No. I think I think he just had a personality that really caught fire. 
Uh, I mean, uh, you're but why right. did they let him, you know, tweet and play guitar and not a lot of other astronauts? That's that's my question, and it made well, me wonder. They all do now. I mean, well, now they do because I mean, NASA realized it's a boon com- for them. Commander Kelly tweets more than I do, and he's up in space. It's crazy. Uh, but he has nothing else to do. I think he has plenty to do up there. Uh, I'm sure he's not listening to our podcast, but still, I'm sure he's a busy guy. If he is, give us a call because we would love to have you on the show. All right, time to wrap up. Uh, We will have a month full of space exploration. So that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and an anonymous patron. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, tweets from space, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want, at any time, from anywhere. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by our fashion designer to the stars, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.